Hello and welcome to the Inquisitor podcast. I'm Marcus Kauke from Sander Training and I've been with Sander since 2004 as a licensed trainer. I've been in sales for 30 years and I've been cold calling for about 30 years on and off. This is going to be the How to Fail Big series and today I'm talking to my associate Benjamin Dennehy. We're going to talk about how to fail big at prospecting. He's been my associate in Sander Southeast for nearly four years. His father and husband, to uh, the lovely Marie and Oriana, only a mother could love him. He's the UK's most hated sales trainer. And Benjamin, over to you. A little bit of background, please. Okay, yeah, thank you, Marcus. Yeah, so as Marcus says, I've been uh, with Sana for nearly four years now. Uh, it revolutionized my life when I learned uh, how to sell effectively and properly. Um, I consider myself good at what I do, but nowhere near as good as my colleague Marcus. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I have developed a reputation as being the most hated sales trainer because I am very blunt, I'm very direct, and uh, like Marcus, we don't suffer fools. Uh, and when we walk in with that ugly mirror, most people shy away. Excellent. Thanks, Benjamin. My first question. So, Benjamin, tell me something. Imagine I was going to pay you a million pounds to feel worse about prospecting tomorrow for just an hour. What strategies might you employ? Oh, that's a great question. I suppose the first thing I do is tell myself that uh, telephone prospecting doesn't work, that it's dead, that uh, it, it simply is a pointless activity uh, and it should be avoided like the plague. So that'd be the first thing I'd do and if, if, if you read LinkedIn, you'll probably discover there's a lot of people that share that opinion. Uh, the second thing I would do would be to tell myself that I'm going to be interrupting a busy person. Uh, that the person I'm calling is probably better than me because they are a managing director or they're the, a CEO. So that's what I'd do. In fact, I probably wouldn't even bother calling that high because a little voice would say, what are you going to say when you get through to him? So I'd probably go for a manager, maybe even the janitor, someone at my level. <laughs> um, what else would I do? I would tell myself that I'm not going to get through. So I'd self-sabotage for the moment uh, I went to pick up the phone. So I would assume that the gatekeeper won't let me pass. I would tell myself that in order to get past a gatekeeper, I've got to make them my friend. Uh, there's a real philosophy out there now that gatekeepers are just friends and waiting. Actually, they're not. They're doing a job and that's to stop you getting through. So I tell myself I have to make friends with the gatekeeper, uh, which will actually lead into the belief that I don't really want to talk to the person I'm trying to get through to anyway. I would tell myself that if I do get past the gatekeeper, uh, that I'm probably going to fumble it, uh, that this person is probably going to ask me questions or challenge me and I'm going to collapse. I'll worry I'll sound like a fool. I'll worry I'll sound silly. I'll worry I'll sound, I'll worry I'll get caught out in a, in a question. I'll secretly be hoping that the person I'm phoning doesn't answer. How many of you out there listening have heard that dial tone thinking, please don't answer, please don't answer, please don't answer. And they do. Then I would feel like a deer in headlights. I'd start stammering. I would then proceed to vomit all over them, telling them why I'm so wonderful. I'd start off by being fake with my sincerity. So I'd ask a question like, how are you today? Or is now a good time? A question that alerts them to me being a salesperson, because only salespeople phone up strangers and ask them, how are you doing today? Weird, I don't know why they do it, but they do. Is that enough? Um, well, it's a start. Certainly the how are you today is known in our world as a hate crime, H-A-Y-T. And... <laughs> If you're committing hate crimes, you're bound to get caught out and beaten up. So tell me this, when you said about vomiting, mm. what kind of reaction does spilling your beans in the way that most people do create within a prospect? 
if you talk to any stranger and the first thing you start doing is talking about how wonderful and great you are, you're going to turn them off. So instantly they don't like you. You also give them breathing space to be able to give you the excuses and the reasons not to progress the call. We're fine, thanks. We're okay. We do this in-house. Can you send me some information? Not right now. Try me in six months. Vomiting on somebody about how brilliant you are achieves nothing. So what kind of reaction does that create typically in salespeople that makes them take that childlike position to the gatekeeper's critical parent or the prospect's critical parent? So what tends to happen is, is when a person makes a cold call, it's often a 10-year-old kid making the call. I point that out to all my clients, that it's a 10-year-old. And that 10-year-old tends to want to answer questions. That 10-year-old tends to want to impress. That 10-year-old tends to want to make someone like them. So they phone up automatically as a child, uh, and they're phoning a grown-up. And grown-ups ask tough questions. Grown-ups can be a bit angry or can be a bit short or sharp or clipped. When these things happen, the child feels that it doesn't belong, it's in the wrong place, and it self-sabotages and instantly finds a reason to bail. Do you ever notice how often when you're receiving cold calls yourself that the salesperson seems to be begging or apologizing? Oh yeah, it's painful. It's like me when I was a young university student trying to get laid. So, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I've grown up. I don't have to bet. Well, not as much. Um, so, You're married. Of course you have to bet. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, it is. It, it, it is off-putting. And there's nothing worse than a loser phoning you up and trying to get you to buy from them, which is what most salespeople sound like. Losers. Fair dues. What about the tendency for salespeople to want to be rescued by marketing or business owners to try and outsource their prospecting. Well, why is that a bad idea? Well, because it deflects responsibility from where it really lies. Look, telephone prospecting isn't difficult if you know what you're doing. And the biggest excuse I hear, the first excuse is the data's poor. Well, there's a thing called Google. You stick in the name of the job title in the company and you can pretty much qualify your data pretty quickly. So excuses and prevarication and procrastination are tools of poor salespeople. They always blame others rather than themselves. Like I say, it's that ugly mirror we carry around with us. No one wants to look in it. That's why they hate us. Absolutely. I mean, you don't have to like prospecting. You have to do it. True. And cold calling is just one of many channels that you can use. If you're not being successful cold calling, then by all means, find other means. But why do you feel that cold calling or prospecting by phone, rather, is such an effective mechanism? Well, first of all, it's the cheapest way of marketing. Most people are always moaning about the cost of sale. Well, the easiest and cheapest way is to pick up the phone. Secondly, the information you need is out there. It's not hard to find the information on who you need to contact. Here's a tip. Just type managing director company name. You've got your prospect. So Benjamin, tell me something. Imagine I was going to pay you a million pounds to feel worse about prospecting tomorrow for just an hour. What strategies might you employ? Oh, that's a great question. I suppose the first thing I do is tell myself that uh, telephone prospecting doesn't work, that it's dead, that uh, it, it simply is a pointless activity uh, and it should be avoided like the plague. So that'd be the first thing I'd do. And if, if, if you read LinkedIn, you'll probably discover there's a lot of people that share that opinion. Uh, the second thing I would do would be to tell myself that I'm going to be interrupting a busy person. Uh, that the person I'm calling is probably better than me because they are a managing director or they're the, a CEO. 
So that's what I'd do. In fact, I probably wouldn't even bother calling that high because a little voice would say, what are you going to say when you get through to him? So I'd probably go for a manager, maybe even the janitor, someone at my level. <laughs> um, what else would I do? I would tell myself that I'm not going to get through. So I'd self-sabotage from the moment uh, I went to pick up the phone. So I would assume that the gatekeeper won't let me pass. I would tell myself that in order to get past the gatekeeper, I've got to make them my friend. Uh, there's a real philosophy out there now that gatekeepers are just friends and waiting. Actually, they're not. They're doing a job and that's to stop you getting through. So I tell myself I have to make friends with the gatekeeper, uh, which will actually lead into the belief that I don't really want to talk to the person I'm trying to get through to anyway. I would tell myself that if I do get past the gatekeeper, uh, that I'm probably going to fumble it, uh, that this person is probably going to ask me questions or challenge me and I'm going to collapse. I'll worry I'll sound like a fool. I'll worry I'll sound silly. I'll worry I'll, sound, I'll, worry I'll get caught out in a, in a question. I'll secretly be hoping that the person I'm phoning doesn't answer. How many of you out there listening have heard that dial tone thinking, please don't answer, please don't answer, please don't answer. And they do. Then I would feel like a deer in headlights. I'd start stammering. I would then proceed to vomit all over them, telling them why I'm so wonderful. I'd start off by being fake with my sincerity. So I'd ask a question like, how are you today? Or is now a good time? A question that alerts them to me being a salesperson, because only salespeople phone up strangers and ask them, how are you doing today? Weird, I don't know why they do it, but they do. Is that enough? Um, well, it's a start. Certainly the how are you today is known in our world as a hate crime, H-A-Y-T. And... <laughs> If you're committing hate crimes, you're bound to get caught out and beaten up. So tell me this, when you said about vomiting, mm. what kind of reaction does spilling your beans in the way that most people do create within a prospect? If you talk to any stranger and the first thing you start doing is talking about how wonderful and great you are, you're going to turn them off. So instantly they don't like you. You also give them breathing space to be able to give you the excuses and the reasons not to progress the call. We're fine, thanks. We're okay. We do this in-house. Can you send me some information? Not right now. Try me in six months. Vomiting on somebody about how brilliant you are achieves nothing. So what kind of reaction does that create typically in salespeople that makes them take that childlike position to the gatekeeper's critical parent or the prospect's critical parent? So what tends to happen is, is when a person makes a cold call, it's often a 10-year-old kid making a call. I point that out to all my clients, that it's a 10-year-old. And that 10-year-old tends to want to answer questions. That 10-year-old tends to want to impress. That 10-year-old tends to want to make someone like them. So they phone up automatically as a child, uh, and they're phoning a grown-up. And grown-ups ask tough questions. Grown-ups can be a bit angry or can be a bit short or sharp or clipped. When these things happen, the child feels that it doesn't belong, it's in the wrong place, and it self-sabotages and instantly finds a reason to bail. Do you ever notice how often when you're receiving cold calls yourself that the salesperson seems to be begging or apologizing? Oh yeah, it's painful. It's like me when I was a young university student trying to get laid. So, I, 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 you know, I've grown up. I don't have to bet. Well, not as much. Um, so, You're married. Of course you have to bet. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, it is. It, it, it is off-putting. And there's nothing worse than a loser phoning you up and trying to get you to buy from them, which is what most salespeople sound like. Losers. Fair dues. What about the tendency for salespeople to want to be rescued by marketing 
or business owners to try and outsource their prospecting. Why is that a bad idea? Well, because it deflects responsibility from where it really lies. Look, telephone prospecting isn't difficult if you know what you're doing. And the biggest excuse I hear, the first excuse is the data support. Well, there's a thing called Google. You stick in the name of the job title in the company and you can pretty much qualify your data pretty quickly. So excuses and prevarication and procrastination are tools of poor salespeople. They always blame others rather than themselves. Like I say, it's that ugly mirror we carry around with us. No one wants to look in it. That's why they hate us. Absolutely. I mean, you don't have to like prospecting. You have to do it. True. And cold calling is just one of many channels that you can use. If you're not being successful cold calling, then by all means find other means. But why do you feel that cold calling or prospecting by phone, rather, is such an effective mechanism? Well, first of all, it's the cheapest way of marketing. Most people are always moaning about the cost of sale. Well, the easiest and cheapest way is to pick up the phone. Secondly, the information you need is out there. It's not hard to find the information on who you need to contact. Here's a tip. Just type managing director company name. You've got your prospect. So Benjamin, what level should people be calling at? Ultimately, it depends on who you're supposed to be getting a hold of. But in my world, it'd be managing director or CEO. If they're not the people that you would initially engage, it will be, say you sell janitorial facilities, for instance, uh, you wouldn't be phoning the janitor or the manager of uh, facilities. You'd want to go to the director of operations. So I believe that you should always be phoning at some level of director in the C-suite where decisions are made. Fair point. And what happens if you call people at your level of comfort? Again, it's a big problem because most people making telephone prospecting calls are not directors. So most people find it difficult to talk to someone that is above their pay grade, so to speak. I'm not a director, so how can I talk to another director? Why would a director engage with me? I'm just an account executive. So the problem they have is they call too low. And when you call too low, you're talking to people that can't make decisions. And if you're going to spend your time doing something you don't particularly enjoy, but you know works, at least do it successfully and go to the people that can say yes or no. Fair point. In my experience, people call at their level of comfort for the simple reason that they don't feel worthy. They fear rejection, feel that they're going to get found out. They don't understand that they have rights. So in the next section, we're going to explore a salesperson's rights. What are your rights as a seller? Ah, very good question. Something a lot of people in sales, I would suspect, have never given much thought to. So what, what are my rights? I believe I have the right to talk to anybody about what I do. So that's why I believe I can phone a managing director or a CEO. I believe that I have the right to ask tough, challenging and uncomfortable questions. My job is to diagnose the truth as to whether or not someone has a problem I can fix. And if I can't ask the types of questions I need to assess that, then I'm failing in my job. I have the right to get answers to those questions. So if I ask a question, I expect an answer to it and not an answer to a different question. Excellent point. I believe I have the right to be treated with respect. Look, you may not like salespeople, but at the end of the day, we serve a vital function. In fact, the whole world revolves around salespeople. You know, without sales, there is no trade. And without trade, we don't have economy. So salespeople are the engine room or the glue that binds us together. So I have the right to be treated with respect. I have the right to be taken seriously. I have the right to get a no. I also have the right to give a no. I have the right 
to set parameters and boundaries when dealing with a prospect. So one of the things I love doing is telling them that if at the end of any meeting, can they please give me a yes or a no or a clear next step, but I won't take a think it over. If they want to give me a think it over, just, just tell me no. Those are great. I'd like to add a couple of others if I may. I have the right to like myself. Mm. One of the problems that I see happen pretty much across the board, whatever industry, and I've worked probably 450 different sectors, is salespeople struggle to like themselves and they diminish what they do and they call themselves business developers, marketing, consultants, yeah. rather than admitting that they're salespeople. I have the right to fail in my role. Mm -hmm. And again, one of the huge mistakes I see people make is they confuse role failure with a personality defect. It's universal, it's unavoidable, it's part of the human condition. And failure is our best teacher. I have to be honest, I can't really remember any substantial lesson that I've ever learned from my victories. But from a damn good drubbing, lots. And I can also have the right to forgive myself. If I've blown it, so what? Move on. Let go or be dragged. I would uh, add the right to have fun. I think uh, too many salespeople, in fact I know for a fact, that they put themselves under pressure. There should be no pressure when selling if you're doing it properly. You should actually be withholding laughter. Well, in the first three years of doing Sandler, I actually used to carry a pin around with me so I could stab my thigh to avoid laughing. <laughs> it, it was that much fun. I couldn't believe it because I'd spent my career up until that point having a miserable time. It was hard work. And I think one of the other key characteristics of great salespeople is being ambitiously lazy. Mm. It's knowing when to do nothing. Mm. It's knowing how to prepare the groundwork so when you have to do that sprint, then you can put all of your energy into it. But most of the time with selling, it's a bit like being a soldier, a lot of the time is doing the drill, the preparation, the practice, so that it looks effortless. I'd agree with that analogy. So folks, if you'd like to find out if you're working too hard, go to www.southeast.sandler.com forward slash selling aptitude test. That's www.southeast.sandler.com forward slash selling aptitude test. Benjamin, tell me this. Why is it that gatekeepers seem to have so much hold and power over salespeople? And what do they do to destabilize the average salesperson when they're making a prospecting call? From experience, most people, when they're making a telephone call, it's, it's a 10-year-old child making this call. The gatekeeper answers, they tend to be women, and as a result, you hear your mother, and <laughs> your mother asks you questions, and she has four key questions she asks you. Who are you? Why are you calling? Are they expecting your call? Or have you ever spoken before? Or words to that effect. Often also, what company are you calling from? This little child feels obligated to answer. They have to answer, and if you buy into prevailing She's just a friend in waiting theory that is prevalent on LinkedIn and everywhere else for prospecting. You're going to answer the questions because that little kid inside you's got to want to impress them or feels obligated. Most people answer questions out of obligation rather than out of a decision consciously that they should answer. So that's how it happens. In Sandra, we teach the rule, the gatekeeper is not your mother. 
So you don't have to answer her question. In fact, what, what's the best way of neutralizing the gatekeeper's questioning? Go in with a question. Because under TA, if I ask a question, I know that 99% of the time another human being will feel compelled to answer that question. So I will always start a call with, Marcus isn't in, is he? Yes. Great. Tell him it's Benjamin. Thanks. Can I say where you're calling from? Sorry? Can I say where you're calling from? Yeah, it's Benjamin of Bournemouth. Thanks. Okay. Notice how destabilizing it is for the gatekeeper to hear that long, silent pause. Her system depends on asking those four key questions. Who are you? What's your name? Where are you calling from? Which company? What's the call about? What are you selling? And does he know you? Is he expecting your call? And if you use their system against them, then often it breaks their pattern. So that then brings me to the next question, which is about pattern interrupt. When you finally get through to the decision maker, how do you disrupt their patterns so that they no longer treat you like every other salesperson? Great question. What you need to do is never sound like a salesperson. And the one thing we hate about sales calls is we all know they're sales calls, but no one's willing to admit they're a sales call. So we start off the lie with a fake sincerity question. I do what's called a pattern interrupt, and I do the exact opposite of what anyone's expecting. Very hard to do when you first start out, but as soon as I get through to the person I want to get through to, They'll answer, I'll say, is that Marcus? They'll say, yes, I go, Marcus, I'll be honest, this is a cold call, do you want to hang up? <laughs> and what's the reaction you normally get? The reaction is twofold. One, they tend to laugh. Two, the reason I've done it is by telling them what to do in the form of a question, I'm actually trying to appeal to their rebellious child. A rebellious child, when told what to do, normally says no. And that is why I do it. This is now no longer a cold call or a telephone prospecting call. They've actually given me permission to talk to them. We have created parity. On that note, one thing that frustrates buyers and prospects all the time is that salespeople tend to steal time. They don't get permission. And I think one of the most powerful things that we do is we, we encourage people to get permission. So talk me through, once they've agreed to the 30 seconds, what, what's the process of getting permission and what do you do from there? Right, so once I've asked someone do they want to hang up, they'll invariably say no. I'll then say, look, let me have 30 seconds. So I give them a time frame. By the end of those 30 seconds, I'll say, either one of two things will happen. We'll either agree to keep talking or we can hang up. How does that sound? Sounds reasonable. Fine. And then I'll go into a 30 second commercial. It's a salesperson's job to control the call. If you fall into the buyer system, then you'll fall headlong into what we call the buyer-seller dance, which is you going backwards at speed on high heels with no control and the other person leading. Make sure you control the call by establishing ground rules, establishing clear boundaries, and prospects are never afraid of you if you tell them what you're going to do to them. Tell them it's a cold call. Tell them they have 30 seconds to make up their mind as to whether they want to continue talking or to hang up. Because if you only attempt to fix the symptom without fixing the cause, the problem will come back. It's important you understand that in this approach of zero objection, no pressure prospecting calls, you take your time, you need to be patient, and you ask for a little favor at the beginning. Because if you ask for a little favor, 30 seconds, 
it's more likely that you're going to get given that 30 seconds. In fact, over 80% of the people that we call, when we get through and we ask for 30 seconds, they give us that 30 seconds. Of the 20% who don't, a simple question, 30 seconds, elicits another 80% of that 20%, which means that you can get up to 96% of the people that you speak to allow you to deliver your 30-second commercial. Now, that's smart selling. Don't try and get your entire body through the door, just get your foot in the door by the request of 30 seconds. If you ask for 30 seconds, you're more likely to be able to get two minutes later, and then 10 minutes, and then an invitation in to meet. Asking for a small favor is more likely to result in getting a bigger favor later when you ask for it. It's a psychological tactic called the foot in the door. That's what the request for the 30 second commercial allows you to do. And then you can ask for permission to speak for two more minutes and then for an invitation in. We're now going to introduce you to the 30 second commercial. It's very different from the classic elevator pitch. It really focuses on creating engagement. And one thing I want you to take away from this is that it has nothing to do with you or your company. You talk about no features and no benefits. It's all about entering into the prospect's realm. It's about creating a dialogue that engages the prospect in a conversation that they may already be having, but they don't really understand the cause. It's about helping you catalyze a conversation that gets you into a dialogue with them about their problems, about what matters to them, about their centers of dissatisfaction. Talk me through the process of developing an effective way to engage your prospect in a conversation. Right, so we use uh, what we call a 30 second commercial versus an elevator pitch, which is what most salespeople traditionally use. So most salespeople tend to phone up and then start vomiting on you about their company, who they work for, or what they've done in your area, all those sorts of things. And I try and convince you through positive reinforcement of what they do that you should spend time with them. Whereas we don't do that. What we try to do is we spend a bit of time figuring out what are the, the problems or the symptoms a person I'm about to call is probably experiencing. My job is to then talk about those as opposed to talk about me. So I would phone somebody up and say, you know, typically I work with managing directors they tell me they're frustrated that they have salespeople that are reluctant or not motivated to pick up the phone. Others will tell me that that's not an issue for them, but their concern is when they do pick up the phone, they maybe don't get past gatekeepers and through to decision makers. And others say that's not a concern, but their biggest fear is that when they do get through to a decision maker, they don't really engage them in a proper conversation. And as a result, they tend to set up appointments or meetings with the wrong person or they're not qualified. Does any of that sound relevant in your world, sir? At this point, they either say yes or no. That's a 30-second commercial. Excellent. And on that note, if you fall into the trap of doing a traditional elevator pitch, hello, my name is Marcus Kauke. I'm from Sander Training. We train salespeople how to make cold calls, how to close, how to get in front of more decision makers then I'll sound pretty much like all of my competition. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest misnomers in sales is the USP, the unique selling proposition. Doesn't it, exist. Absolutely, doesn't exist. It makes you sound like a me too. Mm. And as an exercise for listeners, I'd like you to write down the top three benefits that you build into your USP or your elevator pitch. Press pause and do that now.
Welcome back. What I'd like you to imagine is you've just been fired. The good news is you've just been hired by a competitor. Now write down the top three benefits you'd use if you were selling a meeting on their behalf. Press pause and do that now. Welcome back. For most of you, they're going to sound similar or even identical. Now, the problem with that is if you sound like your competition, you're going to sound like every other salesperson on the planet. And you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. Talk me through the intention behind the 30-second commercial, Benjamin. So the intention is to engage this person in a conversation in their world. Nobody's sitting there thinking about me calling them. What they are thinking about or worried about or concerned about are the problems they face as a business. So when I phone up and I ask them, I don't suppose you have any of these pains or frustrations, if they say yes, then I can engage them in a proper conversation. I can ask them questions like, well, can you be specific? Can you give me a specific example of what you mean? They'll tell me a story. Why do I want them to tell me a story? Because they'll pick either the most recent example or the most painful. That is good. I want them talking about them and their world. So the 30-second commercial is designed to put me into their, their desk, I suppose, to see where they're coming from. I want to enter into their world. I want to enter into the conversations that they're probably already having. They don't know they need sales training. What they do know is, why aren't our people picking up the phones? Why are we meeting all these pointless people? What it also does, it, it lowers the barrier to entry because I'm eliminating resistance. I'm not talking at them, I'm talking with them. And we're, by entering into their world, then we're talking about stuff that is, actually feels relevant to them. It feels personal and it feels current. If we're talking about stuff in the future and it's the upside, that's gain. People buy five times less from gain than they do from fear. And in my experience, they buy 12 times more frequently by moving away from pain than moving towards pleasure. Mm -hmm. So why would you give yourself an 8% probability of having a successful call compared with the focus on the trouble that they're having today? That's what pain is. And it's their reason why they'll invite you in. Many people find the whole concept of selling using pain as uncomfortable or seems to be terribly negative. Your job is to go to the bank, not to get your emotional needs met. And think about it this way. You can have some upside tomorrow, or you can move away from a problem tomorrow, or you can take your hand off the hot stove now. Which one do you reckon is more compelling? So when you're developing your 30 second commercial, keep that in mind. People move away from pain more than they move towards pleasure. We're now going to explore effective questioning. Questioning is a skill that every great salesperson needs to possess. Bad salespeople present. Great salespeople ask questions so the prospect does the presentation for you. Questioning is a skill that very few people have learned to develop to a point where the prospect feels confident in the salesperson and their understanding of what their problem is. A great salesperson will ask questions that deliver insight, not just gathers information or gain understanding. It's your job as a salesperson to ask insightful, effective questions and help the prospect discover why they want your help. 
Benjamin, one of the most important skills any salesperson can have after listening is questioning. On the phone, what kind of questioning skills do you believe that a bad salesperson lacks? A bad salesperson, first of all, doesn't ask the types of questions they should be. So they, they tend to ask intellectual questions. They tend to ask questions in the positive. They, they try. You've probably all received one of those telephone calls where they're trying to work you through a funnel, so to speak, and it's leading you to a logical, you must say yes to us. But as you're going down it, you can feel it and you know it's not that you're going to bail out. Um, they also ask a lot of housekeeping questions. They don't dig beneath the surface. So a good prospecting call actually moves someone from intellect to emotion, and we can come on to that. Understood. I mean, what, what's the problem with asking housekeeping questions then? Because it, it makes logical sense to gather information. Because they're scripted and they don't tend to get to the real issue. And the, the issue we want to find out is, is this a problem somebody actually wants to really fix? And in order for somebody to want to fix something, they have to feel it. And if we're not asking questions designed to uncover if this person feels this is a problem as to thinks it's a problem, it's going to be a lot harder to move them forward. That's a very, very good point. The, the fact that most people in sales believe that it makes logical sense to explain who you are, where you're calling from, what you're calling about in terms of product or service is a fallacy. The reality is we buy emotionally and we justify intellectually. Mm -hmm. And the problem with a lot of housekeeping questions and a lot of scripts is the prospect hasn't got your script. In fact, they're running a very different one which is how quickly can I get this clown off the phone? So what does good questioning sound like? Good questioning. What I want to do is I want to move someone from intellect down to some sort of emotional feeling. And so I would tend to, once I've established they suffer from an issue that I've raised, the first question I ask them is, can they be specific? Can they give me an example? And I want them to pick something. And usually the brain only picks one or two things. It'll go for the most recent, or it'll go for the most uncomfortable. Either are good because both are real and raw. I'll then want to establish how long have they had this problem. Time is important because if someone says to me, oh, I've put up for it for the last five years, I'll push and say, well, you know, can I be honest? Have you ever had a toothache that lasted for five years? To which they'll <laughs> laugh and they'll say, no, well, a toothache is a problem. So it sounds more like a lifestyle to me than it is a problem. Would that be fair? I have to push them to see if it's real. Often they'll fight back and say, no, 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 it is real. Okay, fine. Tell me, what have you done to try and fix it? I want to find out, have they actually taken action to fix the problem? Again, if they say no, my question is, well, why not? I want to understand, is this really something they need to be moving, fixing? Once I... If they have taken action, what's your question there? The question will be, I'll ask a presumptive question and I'll say, well, I assume that has worked, to which they can only say yes or no. And the answer, logically, if it hasn't, because they're talking to me, will be no, at which point I'll probably go deaf and make them repeat the answer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I want them to start feeling it. I'll say, okay, interesting. So, well, can I ask a question then? How much do you think it has cost the business? Important. This is money. At the end of the day, most people's job in sales is to either help people save or stop wasting money. So it's important to see, is there a financial figure they can put on this? Often they will give a guesstimate. Once I understand that, I want to ask, well, how does that make you feel? 
Very important question. Because if somebody says, well, I don't care, it's not a lot of money, it's a billion dollar company, who cares? Or they may say, it's a lot, it hurts. It makes me, it, it does, it kind of annoys me. Great, I've moved them from intellect to a point of emotion. Got it. So as you take them through that motivational interviewing process mm. and they discover their own reasons as to why they may want to fix the problem, what's the next step in your view? One of the problems salespeople have is they tend to fall into the mode of rescuing and they want to say to the person, oh, we could fix all of that or we could take that away for you. What happens now is you start to push them away. What I will invariably say is, look, I'll be honest with you, Marcus, I don't know if I can help you, but I have helped similar companies uh, with similar problems. Now, let's pretend, and I'm not saying I can, but let's pretend I could fix that for you. Is there any reason you wouldn't give me 45 minutes to an hour in your diary? At this point, they'll usually say, well, no, there isn't. Great. Have you got your diary there? I ask I actually tell them almost what to do in the form of a question. Again, there's very little pushback here. They will say, yes, what date are you looking at? They will pick one. Now, you can do a diary dance if you want. I typically would. I'll, even if I'm free, I won't say I can do that. I will, if I can get a person working their diary, I've got someone who is showing a commitment to want to talk further about this. Fair point. One of the things that managers and owners complain about is the amount of time that salespeople go on duff meetings with non-prospects and they end up doing free consulting, they end up writing proposals, they end up chasing. It's interesting that evidence from the field tends to suggest that up to 80% of salespeople's careers are spent in the hurry up and wait cycle where they hurry up and get proposal information quotes and then they wait and they chase and they're constantly doing callbacks to people they should have closed or disqualified on the last call. So I'd like to explore why we teach go for the no. Right well it's easier to get a no in the sales process than it is to get a yes. So rather than spend your time going after the most difficult thing why not go after the things that are within your control and the easiest to get to. Trying to understand the reasons why you can't move forward is a much better approach. So you can ask them, have they tried the alternatives to using you? So for instance, in sales training, it's, well, have you tried recruiting your way out of the problem? Have you tried incentivizing them differently? Have you tried punishing them? Have you tried getting a little black book, hiring someone with a little black book? I go through all the alternatives to using a sales trainer. And what they tend to do is they will either say they've tried it, or they don't want to try it, or they may say, actually, that's probably something we should try first. That, that's a clever strategy, because what that does is it tends to uncover whether they have a willingness to invest time, money, and resource behind fixing the problem. Mm. And it can also tell you where you can find unplanned budget. Before you go and meet a prospect, what's the minimum information that you would want to justify getting out of your pajamas and enter the car to go and see a prospect. Right, so for me, a prospect needs to be a decision maker. They need to be in my target market or sector. They need to have a problem that I can fix today. Not in six months, not in 12 months, but something I can fix today. They have to have demonstrated a willingness and an ability to spend the money, time and resources to fix this problem. 
And finally, they need to be working to a specified timetable. People who aren't working to timetables, there is no sense of urgency and there's no need to get something done. So those are the things I look for. Interesting. One of the challenges that I see occur a lot is where salespeople are trying to fill their quota of meetings rather than get qualified meetings. So I was recently coaching somebody who was concerned that her close ratio for meetings had dropped despite the fact the quality of the meetings had improved and her boss was delighted. If you have a sales team, be sure that you're watching how you compensate them, how you measure and track their performance. If it's just the number of meetings, chances are you will end up in a situation where salespeople's diaries are filled with drops. So I'm talking to one call center at the moment where they have a number of salespeople, 15 telemarketers who are booking meetings on behalf of the sales team. And on average, they're booking about three meetings a day. But the salespeople are complaining that two out of those three meetings aren't qualified. They're inappropriate. And as a result of that, on a, let's say, a 7 million turnover, the opportunity cost of having salespeople booking meetings for the sake of hitting a quota rather than booking the right meetings, it's costing that business upwards of £14 million a year. If you're the manager or the owner of a business, make sure you're fixing the right end of the problem with the people you recruit, how you onboard them, how you train them, what you manage, and what you focus their attention on in order to ensure that you're driving the right kind of behaviours. Benjamin, one of my favourite quotes from you is, decision makers don't make meetings with losers. Can you elaborate? <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, many people, when they pick up the phone to telephone prospect, they do not sound like the person they're trying to get a hold of. They do not sound like a director. And I believe you should only be calling it director level, pretty much across most industries. If you sound wishy-washy, if you sound uncertain, if you don't sound you command a certain level of authority, why would they want to meet with you? Why would a busy person want to give up their time to meet with you? So they don't meet with losers. Directors don't hate sales calls. There is a misnomer out there that busy people don't like taking sales calls. That's not true. What they hate are shitty salespeople. <laughs> I have great conversations with directors. Some say yes, some say no. Very, very rarely do people say to me, this is a bloody waste of my time. I don't know why you're calling me. You should be ashamed of yourself. I can't believe you got past my gatekeeper. You must be an evil, horrible person. Doesn't happen. There's a myth out there that it does. It happens to shitty salespeople because they phone up, they plead, beg, and vomit all over the prospect. Don't. I agree. When we've been training our clients, the thing that they really get frustrated by is decision makers throw questions back at them and they feel somehow they can't answer them and it derails them. And so I think one of the most important things that we teach is how to think. It's not a script. It's not putting your salespeople on rails. It's giving them the intellectual flexibility and the situational fluency to be able to adapt to whatever comes their way. Do you mind telling us the story about the decision maker that you were asked to call on behalf of one of your clients? Yes, I work with a group of headhunters, apparently testosterone-driven tough guys. Unfortunately, they couldn't prospect to save themselves. So I got a bit frustrated with this 
especially when they said that what I teach and what I do wouldn't work with the sorts of people they talk to. And they recruit C-suite individuals. I said, fine, I'll use your data, your contacts, you pick the person, I'll call them. They chose someone that they thought would be particularly tough and difficult. This person answered, and I said, uh, Matthew, I'm going to be honest, this is a cold call, do you want to hang up? He burst out laughing. He said, well, it depends. Where are you calling from? I've learned how to think quickly. He asked me a question, so my training kicks in and says, answer him with a question, reverse him. But again, you have to sound like you know what you're doing. So I said, uh, well, that where are you hoping I'm going to say I'm calling from? To which he replied, the lottery. He was having fun with me. I said, okay, and let's say I am. What are you hoping I'm about to tell you? And he said, tell me I'm a winner. And I said, you know what? I can't do that because I'm not calling from the lottery, but you're still a winner because you get to talk to me for the next 30 seconds. <laughs> he starts laughing again. I go into a 30-second commercial. I could go on, but what I'm saying is I was able to have that conversation, A, because I followed a system and a process that kept me in control. B, I created parity. We bonded and report immediately at the beginning. C, I felt under no pressure to answer their question. I was able to flick it back with a bit of humor, to which he responded with a bit of humor. Remember, this was a ball breaker they chose who they said would not comply or conform to what I do. How did they feel? Very embarrassing. <laughs> well, obviously, you're full of the milk of human kindness. Oh, and yes. So you probably didn't take advantage of that throughout the training. <laughs> One of the most important lessons that we teach in Sangha is your credibility comes from the questions you ask, not the information that you give. True. And in parallel with that, you differentiate in how you sell not what you sell. Do you notice how Benjamin was able to differentiate from the moment he opened his mouth at the start of the prospecting call? This is a cold call you want to hang up. No one in their buying history has ever given them permission to hang up on them or admitted that it's a cold call. I receive cold calls often. They'll often tell me, this isn't a sales call or I'm not trying to sell you anything. At which point, not only have they lied to me, but they've been caught in a lie because the next words out of their mouth are attempting to sell to me. Benjamin then went on to develop an upfront contract, which is, look, at any point, you can decide whether to hang up or to invite me in. He then entered into their world with a 30-second commercial. The 30-second commercial doesn't talk about you, your company, your products, your services, your features, your benefits. It focuses on creating a dialogue with your prospect around what matters to them, what their pain indicators are, what the symptoms are that they may be suffering that indicate we can help. Your job is to think about these factors. You need to understand your customer by job title, by sector, by the stage in their business life cycle they're at, in order to be able to develop a powerful 30-second commercial that enters the conversations they're already having. Your job is also to identify people who will think they're well, who think that everything is fine, the sky is blue, the sun is shining, there's the smell of flowers on the air, and take them to a little bit of hurt, and move them from hurt to sick, and from sick to critical, and then offer them a glimmer of hope. The glimmer of hope is that they invite you in because potentially you may be able to help them and you've helped people just like them. Once you've done that, you go through the diary dance and you establish whether or not they're going to meet you and to make sure that there's no reason why they may cancel, no show or cut the meeting short. How often have you spent time making prospecting calls, turning up only to discover 
that it wasn't in their diary, they cut the meeting from an hour to 20 minutes, or they just disappeared halfway through. If you found yourself in that situation, then it's your own fault. You didn't do what we call a post-sell. Once you've done the post-sell, then what you do is a second upfront contract. And the upfront contract is actually the close of the outcome of the face-to-face -face meeting. Yes, you heard that correctly. The upfront contract is the close. You're closing the sale on the cold call before you have even met them. How do you do that? Go to https colon forward slash forward slash tinyurl.com forward slash Kauki cold call C-A-U-C-H-I-C-O-L-D-C-A-L-L. There you'll have a chance to see my 11-year-old daughter, Anna, making cold calls better than anyone on your sales team. If you want to develop your own prospecting skills, I suggest you get Prospect the Sandler Way by John Rosso. If you'd like a sample chapter, then please go to www.southeast.sandler.com forward slash resources forward slash Sandler hyphen books forward slash prospecting. That's southeast.sandler.com forward slash resources forward slash Sandler hyphen books forward slash prospecting for a free sample chapter of John Rosso's Prospect the Sandler Way. Also check out the Sandler How to Succeed podcast at howtosucceed.libsyn, that's L for Lima, I, B for Bertie, S for Sugar, Y for Yacht, N for November.com, howtosucceed.libsyn.com forward slash how hyphen to hyphen succeed hyphen at hyphen prospecting. That's howtosucceed.libsyn.com forward slash how hyphen to hyphen succeed hyphen at hyphen prospecting. Do you notice how Benjamin was able to differentiate from the moment he opened his mouth at the start of the prospecting call? This is a cold call Do you want to hang up. No one in their buying history has ever given them permission to hang up on them or admitted that it's a cold call. I receive cold calls often. They'll often tell me, this isn't a sales call or I'm not trying to sell you anything. At which point, not only have they lied to me, but they've been caught in a lie because the next words out of their mouth are attempting to sell to me. Benjamin then went on to develop an upfront contract which is, look, at any point, you can decide whether to hang up or to invite me in. He then entered into their world with a 30-second commercial. The 30-second commercial doesn't talk about you, your company, your products, your services, your features, your benefits. It focuses on creating a dialogue with your prospect around what matters to them, what their pain indicators are, what the symptoms are that they may be suffering that indicate we can help. Your job is to think about these factors. You need to understand your customer by job title, by sector, by the stage in their business lifecycle they're at, in order to be able to develop a powerful 30-second commercial that enters the conversations they're already having. Your job is also to identify people who will think they're well, 
who think that everything is fine, the sky is blue, the sun is shining, there's a smell of flowers on the air, and take them to a little bit of hurt and move them from hurt to sick and from sick to critical and then offer them a glimmer of hope. The glimmer of hope is that they invite you in because potentially you may be able to help them and you've helped people just like them. Once you've done that, you go through the diary dance and you establish whether or not they're going to meet you and to make sure that there's no reason why they may cancel, no show or cut the meeting short. How often have you spent time making prospecting calls, turning up only to discover that it wasn't in their diary, they cut the meeting from an hour to 20 minutes, or they just disappeared halfway through? If you found yourself in that situation, then it's your own fault. You didn't do what we call a post-sell. Once you've done the post-sell, then what you do is a second upfront contract. And the upfront contract is actually the close of the outcome of the face-to-face -face meeting. Yes, you heard that correctly. The upfront contract is the close. You're closing the sale on the cold call before you have even met them. How do you do that? Go to https colon forward slash forward slash tinyurl.com forward slash Kauki cold call. C-A-U-C-H-I-C-O-L-D-C-A-L-L. There you'll have a chance to see my 11-year-old daughter, Anna, making cold calls better than anyone on your sales team. While you're at it, why not subscribe? If you want to subscribe, go to http colon forward slash forward slash tinyurl.com forward slash Kauki subscribe. There are over 200 videos on there. I'm adding about 20 a month. And if you subscribe, it will help Anna work towards her 1,000 subscriber target in order to get her dog, which we're planning to get her in the summer. But she has to get 1,000 subscribers to qualify. <laughs> Parenting is all about teaching your children that life isn't fair. I want to talk to you about buyer-seller psychology. In the course of this podcast, we've talked about leaving your mother in the car, making sure that you don't put the prospect on a pedestal, creating equal business stature. But there is a psychological underpinning to all of this. In transactional analysis, you talk about three ego states, the parent, the adult, and the child. The parent is the part of your ego that judges, gives permission, gives non-permissions. It's there to protect you. And it comes in both positive and negative format. It comes in a critical parent. Normally, this manifests as a negative, And it's you always, you never, you should, you must, you ought, you're such a. And it comes with a capital pronoun you and the jabby index finger that stabs you and pokes you in the face or the chest. And it diminishes you at a level of your identity, who you are. Then there's the nurturing parent. Now, I like to view the nurturing parent as the two sides of a coin because you have the positive nurturing parent that always keeps you intact, that always protects you, makes sure your identity, who you are, is protected. And then there's the negative nurturing parent who is rescuing. They help without boundaries, they help without permission, and their war cry is, I was only trying to help. 
when you tell them to go and boil their head. The challenge here is to make sure that you always operate from the adult and the nurturing parent. 30% adult, 70% from the positive nurturing parent, except when you're under attack. When you're under attack, go 100% positive nurturing parent. Because when someone is attacking you, they're normally protecting a scared child underneath. That then brings us to the child ego state. The child ego state comes in three forms within the adaptive child, and that is the compliant child, the rebellious child, and the little professor. The compliant rolls over, says, tickle my tummy, agrees to go and fetch everything that the prospect asks them to, and has a tendency to not really assert itself. The rebellious child is the one with the unibrow, the hands on the hips and the frown, and says, no! And either one of those can get you into trouble, because one will get you to do stuff that you probably shouldn't do, and the other will get you into a position where you probably have to apologise or you dig yourself into a hole you can't get out of. The third is the little professor. This is your know-all. This is the one that has an answer to every question. The little professor and the compliant child seem to be under control of your mother. And I don't mean mother necessarily, it could be parent, but it's that parent ego state uh, that expects you. If I ask you a question, I expect an answer. If I tell you to do something, I expect you to do it. And we have to get out of that state because the moment we put ourselves into that childlike position, we've given away our power, we've abdicated control and handed it over lock, stock and barrel to our prospect. We'll often be taking the position of parent and more often than not, on a cold call, it will be a critical parent. Then there's the third major ego state, which is the adult. The adult is like Mr. Spock. The adult is logical. It looks for evidence. It doesn't make any decisions one way or another. It simply is about gathering the facts. The child is where emotion resides. And if we look at the triune brain, we're talking about the child being very attached to the limbic system. The adult is the neocortex and the parent is our, if you like, our reptilian brain, because it's what kept our ancestors alive long enough so that we could be born um, and our ancestors could breed so that we ended up being the byproduct. One of the challenges that you're going to face is staying out of the fight. It's staying unattached. If you get attached to the outcome, if you are frustrated by and anguished by and your ego gets hooked by, a prospect being hostile, chances are you're moving into what I call the above-the-line status of the drama triangle, where you have the victim, the rescuer, and the persecutor. The victim voice is, why me? It's not fair. This always happens. The persecutor is the jabby index finger. It's that critical parent, you always, you never, you piece it. And the rescuer is, no, no, let me show you, let me save you. And victims love other victims so that they can have a pity party. And this is you complaining and whining and moaning about how hard done by you are and how tough it is. Then you have the persecutor. And persecutors love a good victim. And if you don't know any, you probably are the one. And rescuers love to help without boundaries, without permission. And they go and find a good cause to try and fix.
Your job is to stay out of that entire fight. The moment you adopt either victim, rescuer or persecutor, you are in a psychological gameplay which you cannot win. Now my favorite philosopher, Bruce Lee, was asked what's the best way to avoid a punch and he said be somewhere else. Somewhere else is what we call the winner's triangle. Instead of being a victim you become vulnerable. Instead of being persecuting you become assertive and instead of rescuing you become nurturing. Someone running late operating from the drama triangle might say it's not my fault the sat-nav took me all the way around the houses I'm doing my best. Whereas someone operating authentically from the winner's triangle might say, I am so sorry, it's entirely my fault, I misjudged the traffic, I left it too late, and I'm running late. You must be upset with me. I will completely understand if you'd like me just to turn around, we can cancel the meeting and we can chalk this up to experience. Is that what you'd like me to do? One is deeply unattractive because it's not taking responsibility, it's not taking ownership of the situation they've created for themselves. And the other is very attractive, authentic, and very reasonable. My recommendation is you operate below the line in that winner's triangle. You're constantly behaving authentically, so if you feel it, you say it nurturingly. If you're struggling, you tell them, I'm so sorry, I'm not sure I understand, can you help me out? Or that may be a problem. Is that going to be a deal breaker? Or you know, Fred, I'd love to help you, and unfortunately, on this occasion, I'm going to have to say we're going to no bid. Do you want me to tell you why? Take some time to investigate transactional analysis. I recommend a very good introduction as a primer, Counseling for Toads, by Robert Debord, B-O-A-R-D, and also Ute, J-U-T, Meininger, M-E-I-N-I-N-G-E-R, How to Run Your Life. If you're interested in transactional analysis, or you struggle to assert yourself, you find yourself in a situation regularly where you are the victim, where you are rescuing, or where you find yourself being a persecutor and you realize it's not serving you or serving others well, then contact me and discuss no guts, no gain. Our assertiveness program, which frankly I believe is our best material ever. Sandra is built around the transactional analysis model. This particular program has changed the lives of hundreds of my clients and it certainly had a huge impact on me. I strongly recommend that you explore it and if you'd like to have a conversation with me about that, call me on 0118 940 4150 or on my mobile 07515 Benjamin, I know you've got a prospecting boot camp coming up. Can you give the listeners some details? Yes, yeah, so it'll be held in Southampton at the Base Point Business Centre. It's on Friday the 9th of February. It runs 10 through to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's not free, so I don't want any time wasters or freeloaders contacting me. If you're going to do this, you're going to have to invest in yourself. Before you book, contact me first, because I want to qualify that you're suitable for the training. I'm not just going to let anyone on it because I want people that are there to learn and who are willing to change. How can people get hold of you? They can call me on my mobile 
079269111033 or they can email me uh, at benjamin.denehy which is D-E-N-N for November E-H-Y at sandler.com or obviously go through the website or LinkedIn. LinkedIn, my name, Benjamin Dennehy, and you'll find me. Great. And I have a prospecting bootcamp on the 13th of March from 9 till 5. We're going to be covering telephone prospecting, systematic referral marketing, and social selling. And that's going to be at my training center in Hare Hat, which is between Reading and Maidenhead, just off the A4, right next door to the Horse and Groom pub where we'll be having lunch. And the postcode is RG109AA. If you want to contact me, my number is 07515-937-221-or-marcus.kauchi-at-sandler.com and also you can contact me via LinkedIn. So I want to thank you all for listening and I'd like to give you a little freebie here. If you go to https colon forward slash forward slash tinyurl.com forward slash Kauki cold call, that's C-A-U-C-H-I-C-O-L-D-C-A-L-L, then there's a short video of my 11-year-old daughter, Anna, making a prospecting call. She's good. She is good. It's hell in my house because I seem to spend my time being sold. In fact, there's another video on the YouTube channel which is her selling me on the idea of getting her a dog using nothing but questions and handling all of my objections with questions, so I handle them. That's Marcus Kauke and Benjamin Dennehy signing off. Thank you. This is the Inquisitor podcast, and we really look forward to your comments. In future, we will be hosting a live coaching session. If you write in to us, then you write into marcus.kauke at sandler.com And in the subject line, write Inquisitor Podcast Coaching. And you may be selected. Be prepared. It will be uncomfortable. It will be live. And we don't take prisoners. So thank you very much for listening. I look forward to meeting you again.